I invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to the scripture found in the first letter of the Apostle John. If you're using the, the Brown Pew Bible, that's page uh, 1022. We're going to be starting in the third chapter at verse 11. And if you'll just follow with me as I read. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. This morning, our series, we've been teaching in 1 John. It, it sort of officially transitions to a part two, a second part. While we've been thinking about radiant and God's character, the truths of who he is, we're now going to move and begin to look at how that is practically applied in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. In our exploration so far over the last several weeks, we've discovered that it's possible to experience, John says, abundant friendship with God. He tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness. He does remind us that it's, it's possible to not love God, but to actually love the world, and therefore, by definition, be in direct opposition to him. We've learned that all truth is discerned through him and falsehood is found apart from him. When we live in falsehood, what John calls sin, the good news is that Jesus has provided for us a substitute punishment for any sin that we confess. And he now serves as an advocate before the throne of grace. And once we submit to his authority, and were adopted by God the Father, we can be confident of His, the Father's, abiding love, even as the Spirit of the living God exhorts us and encourages us and empowers us to practice right living as a reflection of that right relationship. That's an awful lot of truth us to have covered in just a short period of time. But it's from those truths about God that John now transitions and he begins to look at what he considers to be the essential practices of God's people, of taking that truth and applying it. Listen, in verse 11, he reminds us, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, all those truths that we just covered, that we should love one another. The weight of the truth of the word is a heavy weight. 
And so this morning, as we take a deeper dive into it, I'm going to ask that you'll just pray with me as we, as we bow our heads. And we ask that God would incline his ear towards us even as he begins to speak to us. And so would you just repeat after me while I pray? Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts and change our lives. My first encouragement for us this morning is that we'd be wise if we aligned our hearts with love and life and not hate and death. If you look quickly in verse 12, the Apostle John, he uses an approach to teaching us this morning that might resonate to some of you. Some of you are lawyers, and some of you have earned your MBA, and so the concept of a case study is probably familiar to you in your graduate program. John here does a case study on what it's not like to love one another. He says, we should not be like Cain. Because Cain, if you look at verse 15, he says, is the exact opposite of how we should demonstrate love. Now, time's not going to give me the opportunity to read the entirety of Genesis chapter 4, but if you have a minute, you might want to flip back there real quick. In Pew Bibles, it's on page 3. And I'm just going to offer a really quick synopsis of that familiar story so that we can understand the point that John is making. You see, after the fall in Genesis 3, we're told that Adam and Eve became parents. And they were parents of several children, including Cain, who was the firstborn, and Abel, who scholars speculate, was his twin brother. Both, Genesis 4 tells us that they were industrious. Cain worked the ground, and Abel managed livestock. They had heard the stories of the Garden of Eden. Both acknowledged God, and they, in this story, responded by bringing an offering from the first fruits of their labors, Cain brought things from his fields and Abel from his flocks. The scriptures in Genesis 4 don't fully and specifically tell us why, but apparently God received Abel's offering and yet was displeased with Cain's. And so in response, in a pattern that becomes familiar throughout the scriptures, Cain becomes angry with God to the point that God saw the condition of Cain's heart and he warned him, now listen to this warning, that sin was crouching at the door. The story continues and it's familiar to many of us and in his rage, Cain murders his brother Abel in the fields, probably by slitting his throat, just like you might slit the throat of an animal sacrifice. The scriptures say that God, who we need to remember knows everything, actually curiously ask Cain about Abel's whereabouts. And it's here that Cain answers with a deceitful and yet I think familiar to a lot of us words, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? For anyone hearing that story, even us here, the implication is yes, yes actually, yes you are your brother's keeper. And so as a just consequence for that violent act of death, God chooses to expel Cain, and he sets him on a path of a lifetime of wandering. And yet, even as he pronounces judgment, God tempers that pronouncement with mercy. And somehow, we're not quite sure how, he marks Cain with a mark that is a sign of his protection over Cain that nobody was free to attack or kill him. 
and that mark is left even as Cain leaves and he settles in Nod, somewhere, we're told, east of Eden. I think that as we share this classic story, because it's familiar, I think, to a lot of us, it's clear that the power and the potency of sin is evident. The viciousness of a raged heart that's released can be seen. Today, we can't help but sort of turn on the television or listen to the radio and and we hear violence and we hear terrorism and we hear tragedy and, and we see the potency of sin unleashed and we ask ourselves, what's wrong with everybody? Why can't we just get along? But the story's been since the fall of man going all the way back to Genesis 3 that brokenness has followed and sin is the resulting marker of our age. It's a rebelliousness against God and his original intentions. And I think that's why John uses Cain as a case study for us. See, Cain's heart condition, we're told, swelled with jealousy and rage. And God, even as he was warning him about the power of sin that's left unchecked, remember he said that sin was what? Crouching at the door like a predator animal waits to spring on its prey. Sin can abide. It has what I'll call a shadowy presence. It stays with you. It affects you. If fed, sin becomes easier and easier to release to manifestations with even the ultimate manifestation of death. For we know that we reap what we sow. I kind of like what Pastor Tim Keller says here. He says this, you start by doing sin, and then sin does you. In one of the sermons that I read that he uh, wrote, he reminded me that crouching is a means of what? It's a means of keeping down, of laying low, of staying out of sight. If you don't see something dangerous, if you're unaware of it, you're dead. If, if, if you're not aware, you're, you're vulnerable. You really, if you think about it, you're easy prey. In his book, he, he writes this. What that means is the worst things in your life, the character flaws, the sins in your life that are most going to ruin you or are ruining you or are going to make the people around you miserable are the things, the character flaws, that you will least admit. They're the ones that you're in denial about. You rationalize and you minimize whatever consequences happen to you when somebody brings them up, you rationalize them away. I read that and I went, ouch, how does he know me? And so I ask you, even as I asked myself, what is crouching in your life? Sometimes it's super easy to see. Even, even to ourselves, sometimes it can be a little bit more subtle, and sometimes we're just in flat-out denial. The story that we looked at this morning of Cain and Abel, it's brutal, but there's some subtleties that are worth paying attention to, even as we listen to John's teaching. We know that both brothers were hardworking, one a farmer, one a shepherd. We know that both brothers were religiously active. See, they, both of them went through the actions of bringing an offering to God. 
And both actually appeared on the surface to be generous, to bring the first fruits of their particular labors. And yet, somehow or other, these similarities resulted in a different outcome. For the scripture teaches that God favored Abel, but he rejected Cain's offering. So let's look at a little less obvious. How many people here are keeper of livestock? Probably not very many people, right? Okay. Well, if you are a keeper of livestock, your income, your wealth, how you made money over time was based on what? Producing more livestock over time. The math is simple. One and two lambs means over time more lambs. One or two calves over time means more calves. And so if you're aiming to develop a flock, your wealth, so to speak, time is your ally. The math is in your favor. If I was to have a heart that was less than generous, what might be the safest pathway to an offering? I would suggest to you that perhaps it would be wise to wait after your firstborn from your flock is born and see overall how many offspring your flock actually produced. Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, you could, you could still take that firstborn six months, nine months, 12 months later and bring it as an offering after you were able to count your flock. I think today in our MBA programs, we'd see that as probably good business decision making. What if though I offer that lamb at the beginning? And what if my offspring turns out to be just two or three over the course of a year? The sacrifice of that firstborn lamb has dire implications for what may happen throughout the year. And so unless my confidence in the production of what I need to live is not in my ability to produce income, but in the one who is my ultimate provider, it's the one who gives me all that I need, even the insights and the strength and the resources to shepherd my flock wisely. And so therefore, for Abel to offer his firstborn, his first fruit, his first livestock, may have seemed like a bad business decision. It testified strongly to his faith in the one who would provide, namely, God our Father. And so the scriptures teach that this type of giver, this kind of worshiper, is one that is open-hearted, open-handed, full of joy, demonstrating trust, living by faith, all of which the scriptures tell us please God. This type of giver is not calculating, not calculating like I suspect we'll see Cain was. See, a farmer can see the harvest that has come in and then determine what his fair share of that harvest should be. Despite the fact that God had given a clear command for some type of an animal sacrifice, Cain counted what he had and proportioned out enough, thinking he was satisfying God's desire. He became the determiner of his offering, and he gave it out of a place of calculated abundance. He gave it from a place of self-sufficiency, no faith was flowing from Cain. The form of the offering, the religious activity that he engaged in was there. 
but the spirit of the offering, as God had intended, was not. And so the Bible tells us, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Even then, God, in his mercy, gave Cain, remember, history's first murderer, a choice for God. God's not in the business of dictating our decisions. Even though Cain was against God, because the scriptures are clear, John is clear throughout this letter, you are either all in for God or just by definition against God, Cain was still in a bit of denial. In his mind, he was for God. How do we know? Well, we see him practicing religion. And in that, self uh, in that self-deception, Cain chose to actually become a slave, a slave to his own darkened heart. And as that slave, the Apostle John says in the reading that we did this morning, Cain was of the evil one, who, by the way, is described elsewhere as the master of deceit. So the first evidence we see is an offering that's in direct disobedience to God's instructions. And the second evidence of the true condition of his heart is what? A jealous, bitter angry murder of his brother Abel. A darkened heart, disobedience, evil, hate, murder, death, they all stand in alignment with what John calls the world. And that is people, institutions, systems that are all opposed to God because they're not all in for God. Grace-filled heart, obedience, goodness, love, generosity, life. They all stand in alignment with who God is. And therefore, the Apostle John in 1 John 3.13 says this. He said, Christians should not be surprised when the world opposes their life, their patterns, and the attitudes that mark the life of a Christ follower. In fact, John would tell us that we should be expecting it and then we should counter that with grace and love and kindness and other godly choices. And so the word of God, I think, drives all of us this morning as, as we live here in Greater Medford and say, what kind of a choice are we going to make? Where's our heart aligned? What do we do with the choice that lies before us? See, how we answer that question has what I'll call consequential impact. That impact is eternal, but we're going to learn this morning, it also has implications on this side of eternity. For each of us, myself, you, my children, our neighbors, our co-workers, the movement from having a heart of Cain to having a heart of Abel who God called righteous, starts with the true recognition of the condition of our own heart, our inability to overcome on our own that crouching sin that's at the door that, we were, that Cain was warned about. And then a requirement on our part to submit to God's love, which John extensively teaches about, submit to Christ's sacrifice, which John points us towards, and submit to the Spirit's transforming power in our life. For if we fail to submit, we have no ability to actually practice 
what John is going to spend the rest of this letter encouraging us to do. So this morning, I'm going to sort of shift and, and add a second encouragement, and that is that we are to act on professed love. We're to cultivate gospel generosity. So if you have your Bibles open, look down to verse 16. John puts it this way. He says, by this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Who's the he? He is Jesus. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, John is saying this. Christians... Followers of Christ, hearts of Abel, you're to put your money where your mouth is. You're to walk the talk. You're not to speak empty words. In short, you're to develop a level of generosity that, listen, indicates a heart that is full of God's love, the love that you profess to have gained. To fail to act, to not put feet on words, so to speak, is to simply be religious. The premium, John here says, is on action. It's not on verbal piety. And so reading the scriptures got me thinking, how could I help us this morning to take action? What next steps could I recommend to somebody who hears this message and thinks about not being Cain and wants to move towards acting on the love that they've experienced from God? How can we actively cultivate vitality in greater generosity? And so this being the year 2017, I got real creative and I, I'm going to offer you 17 specific actionable ideas. I promise they'll be quick where perhaps even if you consider one, by faith, you can begin to cultivate a spirit of generosity and then take a step towards releasing the love that you've experienced through Christ to others around you. So let's get started. The first thing that you need to do if you want to cultivate gospel generosity is you need to start with God. God's always the starting point. In verse 17, the Apostle John says that the only way that we can really understand love is through the life-giving, love-sending sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that's been offered to us as a sacrifice for our just and deserved punishment. We love, John says, because he loves. We give, John says, because he gives. Gospel generosity starts with, duh, the gospel. That's our starting point. And so, if you really have a desire to cultivate gospel generosity in your life, then the first thing you need to do is you need to surrender a heart of Cain and ask for and receive a heart of Abel. This, people, is God's most generous action of all. 
And so we need to remember, even as we read this morning's text, that the readers, the original readers of John's words, they were Christians. He was writing to a Christian audience. His exhortation for generosity, while it's useful to anybody, is specifically targeted to us, those that claim to follow Christ, be filled with his spirit, and attempt to live an authentic Christian life. So everything else that I'm going to kind of go through as suggestions and recommendations, they become a distant second step if you have not appropriated this first most crucial step of faith and surrender. John suggests that if you want to cultivate gospel generosity, that you might start with some personal reflection. And so I'm going to give you just four simple things that you might do on your path to learning how to be a more generous individual. You might start by simply asking the question, how much is enough? Looking around what you have. It's one of the most powerful questions that you can ever ask yourself. I, it's one that I pose with young people all of the time. It has a, a life-altering impact if you answer that question in consultation with God in prayer. It's not a question that you sort of throw out there and ponder. It's one that in active dialogue with God, you come to uh, some sort of an understanding. We need to consider the fact that not everything that's been placed in our hands is specifically for us. There is a decision-making process that goes on, and how much stays in our hands and how much is released is a good first place. Secondly, you might want to consider frugality. You hardly ever hear that discussed anymore. And that's not to say that God's people should be cheap. We should actually be generous. That's the point of this morning. But we are called to be stewards and managers of God and trusts. So exercising care with our spending and, and choosing wisely how we preserve funds, but we do, but we're frugal so that we are actually free with the excess. We could choose simplicity. That's something that we could choose. There's a relationship between simplicity and generosity. Sometimes the things that we own, the, 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 the stuff that we gather, it has a heaviness in our lives. It, uh, uh, it sort of weighs us down. I remember hearing on the radio a number of years ago the story of a man who was thinking about buying a swing set for his children to put in the backyard, which is, a, which is an awesome idea, right? Well, he was an engineer, and so he decided to look at some of the specs, and what he discovered was the manufacturer said that over time when you use a swing set, the nuts and the bolts kind of get loose. So there was a recommended cycle of going out and tightening all of the nuts and the screws over time. And he sat down and he calculated out. And by the end of the time, he said, you know what? I'm going to spend a ton of time doing something that brings absolutely uh, no joy. And suddenly, the simple fact that there was a swing set around the corner at the park became attractive to him. And he took his children there and they swang in the swing set and had a great time. And he preserved the, some of that time by simply making a simple, simple choice. Sometimes the fourth, uh, fifth thing that we need to do is just release what's stored. Uh, I don't know about you, but um, we encounter the stuff that we own and a lot of what we have, we actually put into storage. You know what that's like, closets, attics. We rent things down the road. Last year, Teresa and, and my wife and I sold our home of 25 years to move to Medford. And it took me, I'm embarrassed to say, several months to clean out my attic after 25 years. It was so much that I had to hire two teenagers to come and help me get it out of the attic so I could even begin to look at it. Now, now someone over here is laughing. 
You're laughing because you know better. I don't see myself as a hoarder. Honestly, I really don't. But the evidence says that I definitely was a holder. Some of the things were memories. That's, that's good. There was a lot of junk. Some things had been eaten by the moths and so were wasted, which was a shame. Some of the stuff was simply valuable to other people. And if I had simply made a decision to release what's stored, my guess is that other lives would have been impacted in a healthy and an admirable manner. And so sometimes we just need personal reflection around some of the areas that God has given to us. Sometimes after we look at our personal reflections, we, 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 we can cultivate gospel generosity here within the local church. Brotherhood, remember, is defined sometimes as those that are adopted by God. So one of the first recommendations I have, if you want to cultivate generosity, is uh, come together. Gather and seek opportunity. Simply put, if you're not present in the body of Christ, when the body of Christ is coming together to worship, then you're not in a position to see a brother who's in need. On the most simple level, your next step may simply become becoming more consistent, coming together here on a Sunday morning so that you can more regularly uh, uh, see brothers that are in need. And if you're regular, that's awesome, but it may be that you might want to come a little early. And if you come a little bit early, you might have enough time to be able to witness and see and understand and learn where needs might exist so that you can respond. If you're not an early comer, you might be someone who lingers and stays for a few minutes afterwards. I think that the key for us to seize as the body of Christ is that Sunday mornings, at the very least, is a convenient time for us if we're coming together with intentionality around generosity to know each other and to know each other's needs. Another possibility is you can connect with a group. Um, you hear us say that all the time. It's an opportunity for a different level of community. You can discover that by not just coming on Sunday mornings, but by coming at some midpoint in somebody's home. And I want you to listen to this story. I love this story, and I've, uh, I, but I haven't shared it here. I have a dear friend named Elizabeth who was part of a group in my last church. And uh, uh, Elizabeth was going through some very difficult times, emotionally, spiritually, and even financially. Uh, in, in today's language, she was flat broke, that she had no means. And her car, and you know how this can be, was not reliable, not dependable, and had basically uh, failed her. And so despite the fact that she was hardworking, um, her issues of transportation didn't look like they were going to be solvable anytime in the near future. You get the picture? So one night on her birthday, of all nights, she dragged herself to her community group. She was kind of depressed, is the way that she tells me, but, but she went, and when she got there, her community group, which was made up of probably about six families, um, young families, uh, they had young children, mortgages of their own, gathered around her, and they had heard her prayers for months about her situation and her condition, and they had great empathy on her. And so, as you can imagine, they, they prayed with her during that time. Well, they sang her little happy birthday, and she blew some candles out on a cake, because that's what community groups sometimes do. And they gave her a tiny little box and, uh, to open up, just a little something-something. And she opens it up, and she pulls out keys to a car. And parked in the driveway was a Ford Explorer, and it was hers. For months, these people, these are friends of mine, young friends of mine, millennial friends of mine, 
with lots of student debt like a lot of our students have today. These were not wealthy people. But in community, they heard her need. And they pooled and sacrificed what they had. And then they shopped and they found her what she needed. And it even, here's the great part about truly generous people, it was exactly what she would have picked out anyhow. So they delighted her on top of it. Later, I, was ta I talked to her yesterday because I asked her permission to share this story. Later, things got better for her. And uh, her finances rebounded. And she's a hardworking person. I really respect Elizabeth a lot. And she was able to, that car served her for a long time. What do you think she did towards the end of its useful life when she was done needing it? She passed it on. See, that's the principle that John's saying here. We receive so much, what happens? We understand what we've received and we turn around and we do what? We give generously to somebody else. And that's the vision that we have for living life together in groups here at RHC. The fact of the matter is, is we have a benevolence fund for members where, where if there's a financial need, we can kind of go to a little pool of money. It's not a lot. And share it. You know how many checks I've written for benevolence this year? Zero. Is that because we're cheap? No. It's because the needs of people are being met in the community groups when people are living life together. And if the need ever outstrips that group, then they come back to the church at large to figure out how we can care for each other. That vision of mutual care is, uh, is a huge vision for us. And it may be that the biggest reason for you to choose to connect with a group has nothing to do with you going to get your needs met. It may be that you need to go to a community group so you can hear the needs of other people and be the one that meets the needs. It may have nothing to do with feeding you. But here's the key. Generosity has this really neat way of growing us. And so you probably will grow on top of it as well. Another great reason is, another great recommendation is you could serve with a team and uh, you could consider what I would call accountable commitment to generous acts of service that benefit everyone, other attenders that are in the life of the church. So, for example, if you like your generosity to be anonymous, and I know that there's some people that are like that, you could decide to join our venue team. Our venue team are individuals that serve once a month. They get here at 7 in the morning, and they set up this whole environment for us. Some of our venue team stays late and tears it down. Raise your hand if you're here this morning. Oh, good, you're listening. Okay. Every single one of you that raised your hand has received the generosity of this morning's venue team, and you don't even know who they are. Generosity sometimes happens through a team when we're generous with our time as well as with our money. One thing you could do is you could consider uh, learning how to give with increasing maturity. And, you know, it's one of those topics that pastors don't feel great about talking about, but the scripture talks about uh, giving uh, financially all the time, so I'm going to just be direct. And I'm just going to challenge each one of us. We should be giving generously back to the local church so that people can come to know who this Jesus is and so the church itself can grow in greater health and generosity. So if you've never given, perhaps the one thing you need to do today is give your first gift. Maybe that's your step. If you're an inconsistent giver, maybe you should just strive for being a more regular giver as a practice. If you're a casual giver, maybe you need to figure out with a conversation between you and God what percentage of your income uh, he might ask you to release. If you're a leftover giver, maybe you need to look at your lifestyle and 
maybe strive to give more. If you're an unfocused giver, maybe you should set your goals based on how much should I keep, not how much should I give. And I could go on and on and on, but we'll have an opportunity to be able to do that later. Well, once you've sort of developed and cultivated generosity within the life of the church, we can't neglect developing generosity outside the life of the church. So I'm going to rapid fire give you eight really great simple pieces of advice and then we're going to go home. You can map your neighborhood. Here's what I'm saying. Find out who you live near, know their first and their last name, learn their stories, meet their needs. You could join a Serve Medford effort. We just finished purchasing and delivering over 110 turkey meals. And what I love about that experience is we look people in the eye as we're doing it. And they understand the motivation that we have for it. 2018, there's going to be a lot of opportunities where we do community service as the identifiable body of Christ. And so you can join any number of those. Uh, next, you could support the efforts of other community organizations. One of our visions for Serve Medford is, is not that we do every possible good work that's, that, that's going to happen here in the city of Medford, but that we do want to be a model and we want to catalyze service in general outside these doors. And so it may be that your task is to become a generous person in partnership with another organization that's doing a good work that perhaps isn't done here or is being done slightly better. You might choose to go on a short-term mission trip. That might seem odd to you. But first of all, you probably have to save a couple of dollars to get yourself ready to go. We'd love to underwrite everybody, but we can't. But you can make the decision to be able to do something. And the great part about uh, short-term mission trips here is when we go, typically we go and we give in generosity and we serve generously physical needs through a local church. And so in Montreal, I shared a couple of weeks ago, my five-team a uh, five-member team went to Montreal, and one of our experiences is representing Jesus Christ, representing Redemption Hill Church, and representing our church plant of Renaissance Church. We went, and we simply gave our time at a men's homeless shelter. And uh, in 2018, I think shortly, Pastor Chastine is going to reveal a whole menu of short-term mission trips that are available. You want to cultivate a generous heart and a generous lifestyle? Make a commitment even now mentally to investigate and follow up on that. You could support a general cause of mercy. We can, you can decide that you're going to do what you can to alleviate hunger, advocate for adoption, engage poverty, distribute water. You can decide that you're going to sponsor uh, a specific child. I, I hesitate with this story because I don't want to be boastful, but this is the truth. I want to be a model. And so here's the deal. My wife and I have sponsored a child named Jamima Mamperus from Haiti for over six years now. We are paying for her education. The way that we love Haiti is by loving this child. That's what we know how to do. And so not only are we paying for it now, but we've committed to her. We've looked her father and mother in the eye and told them, we will pay for her education until she stops going to school, whatever that means. We're so serious about it that Jamima Mamperus is in my will so that if I die and I can't continue, my promise to her continues. Now, I say that not because I want you to go, wow, he's pretty cool, right? The fact is it took me years to get to the point of understanding how important it is that we give outside of ourselves. There's nothing that unites me and Jemima. There's no common blood. There's, she's made in the image of, of God, and I honor that image. And so I love Haiti, and I love the world through one little girl. That's what I know how to be able to do. You might decide that you're going to pursue compassion during a specific crisis. I love the fact that we, when we give our offerings, 
on Sunday mornings. A portion of it goes into what we call the Southern Baptist Convention Cooperative Program. And all that means is a lot of Southern Baptist churches pool their money and then try to do really smart things with them. And one of the things is we have a little organization for disaster relief. And so when Hurricane Harvey, Irma, and Maria all hit, at the front lines of that effort was the Southern Baptist Disaster Relief, partly funded by this church. And as a result, 3 million meals were given out, 28,000 loads of laundry were done, and 464 roofs have already been replaced. And this last one you might think is a little bit strange, but I'm going to tell you, if you want to cultivate generosity in your life, I'm going to tell you to earn more. But I'm going to tell you to earn more so that you can give more. For some of you, I love what Tanner said a couple of weeks ago, if anyone is going to have money, why not followers of Jesus who can do something positive in the kingdom with it? Why not? So, Earn more so that you can give more. Release your spiritual gifts. If you have a business, run your business. If you have a profession, run your profession so that one of your goals can be to accumulate so that you can release and cultivate that lifestyle. In short, all of these ideas boil down to this. A right heart with right generosity becomes an act of worship to who God is. There's 17 suggestions and there's many more that I think you could come up with that we can worship God with gospel generosity. And just as true is the reverse of that. The wrong heart, even with the form of right generosity, never equals worshiping God. That was the downfall of Cain. Well, I have one more story for you. Recently, I heard an illustration uh, taught by a teacher named Ray Vanderlam, and uh, he's got a neat little ministry called That the World May Know. And in this, he talks about a, uh, a Palestinian uh, or a Jewish man who's walking down a dusty road, and he was, he was on his way to a village. And it was a long distance, and it was the end of the day, and he was tired, and there was no Uber, so he was carrying his own pack. And he saw in a distance coming at him two Roman soldiers, and immediately he sighed. He knew the law. The law said that those Roman soldiers had the legal right to stop him and to ask him to carry their pack for up to one mile in any direction. And he knew that they were going to ask. You know, when you see somebody approaching, you can see the look. So not only was he going to have to carry two packs, but he was going to go in the opposite direction to where he was headed. There was no place to hide, and so he did what I think a lot of us would do, at least I would do, kind of act tired, haggard, and old, like incapable, right? But it didn't work. Jew, one of the soldiers, cried out to him, carry my pack. So he laid, took the pack off, his, and he laid it down and tried to hide it so nobody would steal it. And it would be there when he got back. And he shouldered one pack and he shouldered the other. And then he headed off in the opposite direction. As you can imagine, these soldiers weren't particularly kind. And as they walked, they laughed at him. For Jews back then, their dress was strange to Romans. And some of their customs were strange. And they were accustomed to humiliating. And so one of them said, hey, Jew, if I wanted your house, would you give it to me? And wearily he said, yes. Yes, I would. 
Hey, Jew, if I wanted your money, would you give it to me? Nodding pretty immediately, he said, yes, yes, I, I would give you my money. Hey, Jew, if I wanted your coat, would you give it to me? No, no, I wouldn't give you my coat. That surprised the Roman soldier. And he said, wait a second, you would give me your house. You would give me your money, but you wouldn't give me your coat? A coat, the Jewish man said, I have. See, I think that most of us really do go through life with good intentions. I think we like to think of ourselves as generous, good-hearted people, full of care and compassion, willing, at, at least in our own minds, willing to provide for those that are less fortunate. And yet, despite the good intentions, sometimes when it comes to the coat that I have, there's often reasons that we can cite as to why we can't. And so my prayer for us this morning is, is that as we love one another, not as Cain postured his act of love, but as love that's actually erupting from a heart that's been transformed, that we choose love and life over hate and death, that we put into actions and deeds the intentions that I think we have. In other words, my prayer for us this morning is that we would love one another generously in response to the sacrificial love of Christ. Would you just bow with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we bow before you and, and we ask that you would help each one of us in our weakness. Father, my prayer is that we not leave here with 17 tasks of giving and sharing, but rather our hearts that are renewed. Help us, Father, I pray, to not be owned by money or stuff in our lives. Help us to trust your provision like Abel apparently did. Help us to hold everything with an open hand. Help us to love our brothers and sisters, those that are adopted into the family of Christ and those that are made in your image. Help us to move, Lord, I pray, beyond mere words. Help us because they're our family and you love them. So I pray this very week that you will bring many opportunities into our lives for generosity and you'll give us the courage to take one step. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.